And welcome to the KI Prime podcast with me, Alina Jenkins. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Dawit Wandermagen, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Addis Ababa's University School of Medicine and Chief Executive Director of Tika and Bassa Hospital. His research focuses on the exploration of power dynamics and equity in the context of global health educational partnerships and how this can be realigned in a more positive orientation. When I interviewed him in the autumn of 2020, he explained why global health educational partnerships are unique opportunities for mutual learning and development. Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm in Ethiopia. I work at Addis Ababa University. And Addis Ababa University is one of the largest universities uh, in Africa. But as uh, most African universities, we we engage with our uh, northern partners to run uh, most of our programs uh, in partnership uh, with a number of universities uh, in the north. And that creates a really very good opportunity for all of us to develop knowledge. And global health educational partnerships are unique opportunities for mutual learning and development. But as you, you know, some of the historical factors determined that in these partnerships, the export-import model uh, have become quite dominant. So when I engaged in uh, academic work here, especially working with these partnerships, I, I started to be really interested in the exploration of power and power dynamics and equity uh, in the context of uh, global health uh, education partnerships. So my work is mostly focused on interrogating and trying to realign this uh, pattern of dominance in a more uh, positive orientation. As I understand it, there's a lack of these good partnership models, particularly from the Global South, Global North perspective. Yes, yes, I, I think that's uh, that's fair to say. We, we don't have really a very good uh, model that we could uh, say works better in terms of transfer, uh, which results in the marginalization of local knowledge. And that is problematic. And that is a problematic we want to address uh, because our world, all our world, benefits from the immense uh, scientific advances uh, that, that came from research anywhere in the world. But there is also local knowledge that, that helped society survive for thousands of years in the absence of such, uh, such, such knowledge. So by just adopting a, one, a unidirectional uh, model of partnership, uh, we're, we're really running local knowledge and situated knowledge and we end up creating this decontextualized knowledge base, which doesn't really help anyone uh, at the end of the day. I've been speaking with some of the other fellows who are looking at similar areas of research. This idea that different cultures have different values and that you can't have a one-size-fits-all approach in medical education. Yeah, we, we, we really can't have that because I'm a psychiatrist and uh, that, that actually makes it much more easier because uh, even within medicine, uh, disciplines like, like psychiatry are really on the margins 
between uh, science and society. And uh, because of that, we have this opportunity to really capture what is available at the edge of society and bring it to to some kind of uh, form and make sure that no knowledge is left behind or disregarded. And, uh, and then that way the world will be uh, a much a much better place. I was reading a recent paper that you wrote where you spoke about something called brain drain. Can you tell our listeners what you mean by that expression? You know, the, the brain, brain drain is this phenomena where this uh, sort of migration where the best and the brightest minds are taken out of uh, places like ours in search of better and big opportunities and leaving places really devoid of the much critically needed capacity. So it is, in short, the flight of people because of uh, both pull and push factors to more developed nations, uh, leaving less developed nations, as I said, devoid of necessary human capital. And secondly, there is a a kind of an internal brain drain where uh, where people uh, choose to, to leave public service and go into NGOs and the private sector in significant numbers. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but because of a number of social reasons, the public system in, in places like in Ethiopia are really, really critical for making sure that social services are available. So people living there, that's also another level. But the level I'm interested at is a, a different one. It is a, a kind of brain drain where, where someone like me who's trained, let's say, as a Western psychiatrist using Western models. And then it actually makes me unavailable for the local communities I'm supposed to help because what I've learned and uh, and know and uh, the skills that I've, I've developed may not entirely be fitting into the people that I'm supposed to uh, serve. So that's, that's also another kind of drain that uh, nobody really talks about that often. I wonder if this ties in with opportunities for students and graduates from the Global South when it comes down to things like accreditation and how accreditation works globally. What are your thoughts on that? I think there is some good and some bad in that, as as most things. But who has the authority and the power of accreditation is again the question. If I get an accreditation, uh, let's say, from uh, an organisation in the UK or the US or uh, Sweden, what does it mean uh, for me working in Ethiopia? And then my accreditation here, what does it mean for me working somewhere else? Because it's not like we have uh, a clear and practicable uh, global standard for anything. And then when someone claims that they they have that authority to accredit uh, people, especially those of us in the the developing uh, world, then uh, it becomes really problematic to even begin to understand it. And uh, I mean, local institutions can have their own mechanism of ensuring quality and standard. That's understandable. But again, whose standard becomes a question to study here? Otherwise, it's, we, we fall back to in what you just said, that one-size-fits-all standard. And, uh, and then we, we have to create some kind of sphere of presence. Otherwise, it will be very difficult to mean anything anywhere. 
So tell me more about this sphere of presence. Obviously, we want global standards, but as we're discussing here, culture and standards and values will vary vastly around the world. So how do we begin to address this? That's actually a very good uh, question to look at on its own. One of the issues in this regard is, okay, it is a problem. We know this is a problem. There is a power dynamic and so on. The problem is global standards. And then the question becomes that of evidence. Like uh, even now in the last, I don't know, two or three minutes, I was taking, saying, uh, talking about marginalization of local knowledge that we're missing the advantage of, that we get from situated knowledge and so on. But what knowledge is a question. What is that knowledge? What is that local knowledge, knowledge that we marginalize? There has been no research, actually, so much of that research. And that's where we, I, I think, should start to begin to address this question. Whatever this sphere of presence has a language, and that language is science, and then uh, it has a way of uh, doing things. And then we, there, ha- there has to be a mechanism whereby we say, okay, through this language, these are the kind of knowledge. But th- there hasn't been uh, any interest so far to really bring that out. It seems like there's a continuing imposition between the global north and the global south across so many different areas. What's great about this fellowship programme is there are so many of you addressing this imposition. Exactly. That's what I'm hoping for, because for so long, this this has been a fight and not a good one. It's not like no, this is neo-colonial and we have to resist it. That's a legitimate way of putting it. But we have to move past that or beyond that and also say, OK, this is one way of looking at this thing, but this is also how we've managed to produce this knowledge and let's look at this and see how these two could merge or uh, one could be an alternative over the other. And my work involves such such attempts. Earlier uh, in my career, I used to focus on uh, making sure that like uh, instruments are translated properly and they make local sense and so on without really questioning constructs, just like any young uh, enthusiast would do. Uh, I never questioned the construct. If there is uh, something called depression, there was no reason for me to question whether there is something called depression or not. And then I, I gradually moved from that, engaged in a research where we explore individual experiences of life. For example, what is the experience of rural women in Ethiopia in the postpartum period? What are the socio-cultural influences of emotion and behavior, instead of really taking an instrument and measuring it and then saying this number of uh, mothers have depression or not, I gradually moved from that and focused on uh, really understanding what is there and, uh, and what can be explored. And now more and more, I'm uh, taking up the issue straight up, uh, looking at power and what is making it possible for this kind of disparity to to persist, you know, there are clear differences, especially resource-wise. And one of the issues has always been that we in the South get so excited by the opportunity of funding, education, professional advancement, and so on. Knowing or knowingly or unknowingly, we actually go with the wind. And if there is a funding and I get a role in a particular research, I take it up. And I make I, I make it possible for that research 
to actually grow roots once it's exported. And two, there hasn't really been uh, that much of an opportunity for building the capacity of thinkers in Africa. I need to explain this further. So because it's all methodically designed, so if I do a PhD and then I learn a particular methodology and then uh, I do research based on that and then I report it and then I publish it. And the funding for that most of the time come from other places. In most circumstances, the questions for the research come from other places. But I'm still interested to, to do this research. This is a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that I don't want to be wasting. So I engage with it and get the really good technical uh, skill in conducting a proper scientific research without really developing that capacity to think and come up with the questions by myself. So I will be this technician instead of the scholar I'm supposed to be who's going to take up all these questions of local knowledge and so on and then bring them to the fore. I think some of the, the areas where I'm, I'm heading. You're really trying to blaze a trail, Dawit. You're doing something which doesn't make people feel comfortable, which is challenging. But I guess you have to go down that path to bring positive changes in global health. That's a good question. I think one is it's about intentions. Uh, I don't think for any, or any, any of us really understood what we are doing because all this is done with good intentions, right? We want to build the capacity. If you don't have uh, enough number of doctors, you want to uh, train them. If you don't have enough number of specialists, you want to make sure that there are this number of professionals in, in such places. So it was all done with with intent, but nobody really kept track of what was really happening and for whom we are we are really training. A very good example from my own experiences, when I graduated from medical school here in Addis Ababa, I'm now in charge of uh, our College of Health Sciences. I'm, I'm leading the whole all health programs. In 2002, uh, and I was an undergraduate uh, medical degree, you were 48 in my class. And a uh, few years after that, and now, there are probably eight of us in country. So people were move, like moving in masses, and they're doing well elsewhere. So we want to train doctors, but we actually ship them uh, or they go. And the years go by and then the place here gets worse and worse in terms of uh, the provision of good, good health care because, because the training was that good, really. And any one of us could be taken up by any good institution in the north. Then how do you approach it? So is a, a question, do you water down the training so that you train poor uh, doctors and then they stay in country? No, you can't do that. Then it becomes really a problematic to study and continue, continuously look to improve on making it quite relevant locally and then also creating this opportunity for researchers in Africa that it's okay to stay here and there are opportunities for research. And this fellowship, uh, in a way, does that in some ways, that just knowing that there is this opportunity to be in a, fellowship, a fellowship with a global standing uh, but it doesn't really matter where you are, where you come from. But the work you do is quite uh, uh, an exciting opportunity for so many uh, young people here so that you don't really have to live. You don't really have to do something that everybody is doing uh, to make sure that you belong. Uh, there are these, these few opportunities. But some it needed a champion. And I think Key Prime Fellows uh, Programme 
committee and so on, the people there uh, were those champions in this case. Uh, but still, it's a, it has a long way to go. This kind of research is not, is not really still the fashion of the day. It is still uh, frowned upon, I think, in some circles. Finally, a really good example of a balanced partnership is the work you've done in Toronto. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, it is. Uh, it is called the Toronto Addis Ababa Academic Collaboration. It is an academic collaboration for, between Addis Ababa University, my university, and University of Toronto. Uh, it was started in 2003 uh, with uh, support from University of Toronto to develop an in-country uh, psychiatry program, a psychiatry postgraduate program. Uh, by then, we had no psychiatry training program in country. And uh, we sent all our uh, uh, young doctors to to the UK, actually, to to, to Manchester uh, for psychiatric training. And uh, as you can imagine, only three came back. Uh, so in 2003, we had eight psychiatrists for something like uh, uh, nearly 80, 90 million people then. Uh, so the solution was to actually start an in-country psychiatry training program. And Toronto was willing to, to help with that by sending people to Ethiopia to stay for a month and teach. And then they do that a number of times in a year. And in between one month and then like three months before the next trip, it it gave that opportunity for trainees to actually see if what they've learned can really work or how they can really adapt it to, to fit it into, into the context. So I happen to be one of the, the first graduates in, in that in that partnerships in, in, in 2003. And uh, because the psychiatry program is successful, now we have uh, nearly 100 psychiatrists over the last 15 years, from 8 to 100, that's a, a really good number. We thought this is a good model because we are in control. We control the, the, the curriculum. We say what goes into the teaching. So it's not like we bring in a curriculum from Toronto and then we teach it in Ethiopia. It is programs designed by Ethiopians for Ethiopia and in Ethiopia, but we get this really high-end uh, expertise in terms of uh, teaching the material in-country. And we have over 24 programs, uh, various disciplines throughout our university. And the fact that the, we kept on insisting that we are in charge, we, we are in control, we propose the, the program we want, we say we want a program in this area, and this is how we want to run it. And then uh, our Toronto colleagues are quite uh, accommodative, and we fit in. We try to fit it into the, into the platform that that we give them. That way, we discovered, we both discovered that what matters is actually this relationship. And then we we start to notice uh, what I was just saying earlier that this this meeting, the meeting of our two cultures was changing both of us. And we are saying, no, we do it this way or that way. And we feel like we are partnering on equal grounds. And it's not funded at all. It's not grant. No grant is supporting this. So people are doing it uh, from out of the goodness of their heart from Toronto. When they come for a month, they lose the, their one month's income. And uh, on the face of it, this sounds like charity, but it's not because this is actually... People in believing that when the a platform is there to work together on equal terms, so it's been really quite a successful program. We've written about it, 
And uh, we are hoping that this model will be taken up by more partnerships who really care about the kind of power balance and dynamics that I'm talking about. Dr. Dawit Wandam again. That's it for this episode. Next time, I'll be joined by Dr. Liz Malloy, Professor in Work Integrated Learning in the Department of Medical Education at Melbourne Medical School, and her research into understanding and improving feedback in health professions education. Until then, goodbye.